Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is found in James 5, verses 1 through 7. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because all of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated on their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's army. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rain in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look forward. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Herman. Well, good morning, church. How many of you have uh, one of these red cups this morning? A few of you? It's back. It's back. Roll up through me. Yeah, I see one over there. That's fantastic. This is my first one of the year. Um, and I remember when I was young, I loved Roll Up the Rim. Who loves Roll Up the Rim? A few of us. How many of you go to Tim Hortons more often during Roll Up the Rim than you do other times of the year? Not that. I thought I'd see a few more hands. A few of us? Yeah, maybe. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Um, I'm going to roll this up and see what happens. Um, because I, I have the opportunity right now to win a Jeep. I have the opportunity to get uh, a $5,000 prepaid card. That would be very, very nice. I could win some sport check gift cards. I could get a new bicycle, $50 Tim cords, cards, and let's not forget coffee and donuts. You know, So there's lots on the line. I'm really excited. And uh, here we go. Oh, I think I won. I want a coffee. Hey. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I actually did. I actually did. Uh, who wants my coffee? I probably won't have it. No? 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 Okay. I grew up going to Tim Hortons a lot during Roll Up the Rim. And me and my, my good friend, I think we went almost every day after high school because we wanted to win. We're like, man, a thousand bucks. And when you're in high school, it's like, what will a thousand dollars do, right? And we're like, man, think of all the, the possibilities. They're endless. And it's funny because uh, as I grew up and I get married, Jolene and I would do the same thing. We'd go to Tim Hortons and we'd, we'd talk on the way to Tim Hortons or afterwards, looking at these cups and saying, what would we do if we won the car? You know, would we sell it? Would we, you know, what are we going to do if we had an extra thousand dollars? And we kind of got into this, if only, if only, if only. And it's funny because, you know, there's something lighthearted here, but imagine if I just gave my life suddenly to Tim Horton's cups and I, 
I went there four times a day and I just, I, I got to win, I got to win, I got to win. I would be doing that because I ha- would have this feeling inside of me that if somehow I could increase my wealth or increase the things that I had, I would be happier. So going to Tim Hortons more and more and more, it, it's a good use of my time. You'd hear that and say, well, that's kind of silly. But I did just win a coffee, so... This is all good fun, but man, our culture is saturated with a consumerist mindset, isn't it? Everywhere we go, we're kind of listening to these voices kind of telling us that we need to get more stuff. And if you only had more stuff, then you would be happy. And marketing companies work really hard to convince us of something they call the good life. And they say that this good life is available to you. And if you use this product or or engage in this thing, you will experience the good life. And you just got to do enough and spend enough and get enough and then you'll have it. And they promise this place of arrival. And then somehow they just keep moving it over and over. All these different places. And we can spend our lives chasing this good life. We are people who want to have a, a good life. And we live in a world that tells us that this good life is available to us if we have enough power and control. If we have a a great sex life and all the right relationships, then you'll have the good life. We're told that if we can only accumulate enough wealth, then we will have the good life. And each of us, I'm sure, have in our minds a picture of what we would call the good life. The good life compels us by this, this, it compels us and motivates us by the if-only concept. If only I had this, if only I had that, if only I could do that or this or look this certain way. If only, if only, if only, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have this good life. I have to admit, I am often caught up in... I'm often compelled by these different narratives of the good life. I often find myself worried about things that I think are keeping me from this idea of the good life. I'm often anxious about not having enough money and get caught up in this, well, if only, if only there was a a couple hundred more a month. If only I could get this thing, then maybe I'll be happy. What about you? What's your picture of the good life? When you think about the good life, is it a financial thing? Man, I just wish I had more money. If I had more money, then, then I'd be happy. Is, that, is it that promotion at work? Where you're tired of people telling you what to do? If only I had more power, more influence, then I'd be happy. Do you think your good life is going to be found in, in your children? If only my children succeed, if only they're happy, then I will be happy. Or maybe it's about having the right friends, fitting in in the right social groups. If only I was part of that friend group. If only these people accepted me, then I'd be happy. If only I looked a certain way. If only my health was perfect and I had the perfect diet. If only I could achieve a certain physique, then... I'd be happy. In our passage this morning, perhaps you, like me, were a little taken back by James. 
And if you've been tracking with us uh, in this series, James has been dealing with a whole bunch of different topics leading up to this one. And, and uh, he's kind of, it almost seems like he's been all over the place. In chapter 1, he spends time talking to us about what faith is all about. What's the Christian life all about? And then he goes on to talk about how this is played out. He talks about favoritism. Christians shouldn't be people who play favorites. He talks about faith without works and how if our faith isn't accompanied by works of righteousness, our faith is kind of dead. In chapter 3, he, he goes on to talk about the importance of our words and how we need to be able to tame our tongues and speak righteousness. Also in chapter 3, he talks about what, what does godly wisdom look like? He goes on to talk about worldliness and how we need to be careful that we aren't influenced by the world. Again, addresses the issues of tongue and, and, and judgment and how we shouldn't pronounce judgment on other people. Last week, Ken talked about this idea of boasting about tomorrow. As Christians, we need the people to put our trust in Jesus. And today, James has words to say to us about the unhealthy pursuit of riches. And in a culture that encourages a pursuit of the good life, which is most often depicted by money, James's words cause us pause when he writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And these are strong words. These are very strong words. And James has been talking about money in a lot, a lot throughout his letter. And if you've been tracking with that, you'll see that James doesn't have a lot of good things to say about money. Why is James hating on this so much? You know, why is it that James just keeps over and over in his letter, keeps picking on the rich, picking on the wealthy? I think that the half-brother of Jesus understood something about the good life. I think the half-brother of Jesus understood that the greatest treasure that we have as Christians is not found in money. It's not found in the various things that the world tells us will give us the good life. But I believe that James understood that our greatest treasure and our best life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. James understood that we were designed for a good life. But it's not a good life found in riches, power, or perfect relationships that are free of conflict. It's a good life that's based in this relationship with our Creator who loves us and has created us intentionally and with a purpose. And if the message of the Bible is true, then our treasure cannot be found in what our world has to offer. It's found in Jesus. This morning, James is condemning the pursuit of wealth because it's temporary in nature. It can lead to injustice. And it distracts Christians from caring for one another. And all of this, I see this reminder that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Friends, Jesus is our greatest treasure. This is the reality of the gospel. That God has something for us that so surpasses what this world has to offer. But how often in our lives does Jesus become a misplaced treasure? Something that we set aside, that we lose sight of, 
that we forget the value that it lays in, in this relationship that we have in Him. So what does this passage have to teach us about Jesus as our greatest treasure? Well, I think the first thing that James hits at is this reality that our greatest treasure, Jesus, He's not temporary. He's not temporary. See, there's a problem with earthly treasure. And James hits on this right off the bat. And he, he's very specifically addressing the three forms of wealth uh, in the first century. And in the first century, if you had a lot of grain, a lot of food resources, if you had a lot of clothing, nice clothing, and if you had gold and silver, you were considered to be very, very wealthy. Very wealthy. And his point is so rich in imagery. And as we read this, we, we see that setting one's life upon earthly treasure is short-sighted in light of eternity. Did you catch that? Setting your life upon earthly treasure is short-sighted in light of eternity. You know, Jesus tells this um, very fascinating story, one of his parables in Luke chapter 16, about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. This is what we read in, in Luke, Luke 16. You'll have to listen, it's not on the screen. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted scrumptiously every day. So this is that picture we're getting from James, a man who's rich in food and clothing. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores. And Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the Lazarus's sores. This poor man, Lazarus, he dies. He's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, the rich man lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, the poor man, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, and then they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. That's an interesting story, isn't it? What's going on here? Jesus is is making this point to say that this rich man, he received his riches in life. Those things that he chased after, the good life that his culture told him he needed to achieve, he achieved it. But what's the reality? It was temporary in nature. And when eternity came, when this man passed away, his riches similarly were gone. And he finds himself begging for mercy. It's like, well, you received your good things already. You gave your life for those good things. But now they're gone. This reality is contrasted to Jesus, 
who is not temporary, who will not spoil over time, be eaten by moths or rust. You know, and it's difficult for us to wrap our mind around this reality. We don't like thinking about death. We don't like thinking about eternity. We live in a very affluent society where we are very comfortable people. So why would I think about my death? These are important things for us to consider. You know, after 9-11, church attendance spiked across North America. Why is that? I think what happens is the narrative people had in their, of the, in their heads of what the good life was meant to be, it suddenly didn't make a lot of sense to them. Because a bunch of people died. Terrorism was, was rising. The things that they thought were so important didn't seem to be so important anymore. They started asking spiritual questions. They were brought to a place where they were considering the meaning of life. And it's in those times that we ask these questions, but friends, it should not only be in those times. There is an eternal reality to our existence. Jesus talks a lot about this reality. And in Matthew chapter 6, we read words very similar to what James is, is saying here. Jesus writes in Luke, Jesus doesn't write, Jesus said this and it was written down. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Store up treasure in heaven. What do we make of this phrase? Well, I I think that if laying up treasure on earth is giving ourselves and giving our lives to find satisfaction in earth, on earth, in materialism, I would suggest that laying up treasure in heaven is giving our lives here on earth in the here and now to find satisfaction in what's found in heaven. And what's found in heaven? Jesus. Jesus is found in heaven. The treasures on earth are going to disappoint you. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. You know, I felt pretty happy when I won my coffee. But soon I'll drink that coffee and it will be gone. And that will pass away. And it's easy for us to think, man, if I only had enough, then... Um, I was reminded in our our Alpha group the other night, they quoted Jim, Jim Carrey on this whole idea... And Jim Carrey's quoted as saying that, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so that they can see that it's not the answer. That's interesting, isn't it? Someone who has a lot of these things that we call the good life, he's achieved them. And he's saying, you know what, this isn't the answer. There's also a layer in this passage of investing in eternity rather in pleasure on earth here and now. The Bible is clear that a time is going to come where we will stand before God in judgment. This is an uncomfortable truth. And our passage touches on this when James writes that the corrosion of their wealth will be evidence against them. Well, that's evidence against them in this time of judgment. That God is going to consider the ways in which they spent their lives. This is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Sorry, I'm all over the place this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
uh, Paul is writing on some of these. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. It's the day of judgment because it will be revealed by fire. And that fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done was built on the foundation, that's Jesus, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through a fire. So again, there's a lot of mystery here, and and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but we, we need to understand in this is that essentially what we give our lives to on this earth has eternal realities. The things that you give your life to on this earth, there's eternal realities around this. So what are we giving our lives to? So James tells us the treasures of this world are temporary. We need to turn our hearts to Jesus. He is our greatest treasure. He will satisfy us both now and forever in eternity. But then James goes on in our chapter... <clears throat> he talks about this next part. He says, Our greatest treasure should spur us on to right living. Our greatest treasure motivates us towards right living. And we go on to read in the passage, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. So these verses highlight wrong living. And that the pursuit of riches can lead you to being an agent of injustice. According to James, the pursuit of wealth spurred on injustice. James is pointing his fingers at those who have exploited others in pursuit of their riches. And when we read this, we see there's three things he's pointing. There's unfair wages or withheld wages. These people are living in luxury while others suffer. That's what we read about in, in Luke with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And James goes on to accuse them of murder. And you read this, you're like, whoa, what? And most commentators point out that this is likely that the employees have actually passed away because of starvation. Because they were unable to afford the basic necessities of life. So not only are riches temporary, but here we see a potential problem in the pursuit of the good life. When our idea of the good life is wrapped up in making ourselves happy and secure... When we're, focused, when we're focused solely on our own enjo- enjoyment, we risk blinding ourselves to the needs of others. And this can lead to sin in our own lives. When we're running so hard after this idea of a good life, when we're pursuing it passionately, doing whatever it takes to achieve it, we can blind ourselves to those around us. And our culture is so interesting to me because they promote this lifestyle. We just need to go after it, go after it, go after it. Then you'll be happy. Author Brené Brown pointed out that we are the most overweight, overmedicated, in debt society in human history. And you learn that and you're like, maybe this whole happiness thing isn't what they thought it was. But when Jesus is our treasure, our circumstances, Dances and our choices come to be given a new perspective. 
James has dealt with this already in, in his letter. In James chapter 2, verse 16, when he writes that, And one of you says to a person, Go in peace, be warm to fill, without giving them the things that are needed for the body. What good is that? Here James is talking about justice. That if you have the resources to help someone in need, you need to do that. It's an expression of faith. In a book I'm reading for school, um, I came across something that was written in uh, the early 2nd century by an Athenian orator. Aristides. Sorry. Uh, So written in the 2nd century. This is an observation he made of the church. He said, the Christians know and trust God. They win over those who oppose them and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives are absolutely pure and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from unlawful marriage and are free from all impurity. They love one another. They do not refuse to help the widows. They rescue the orphan from him who does him violence. And he who has gives ungrudgingly to him who has not. If they see a stranger, they take him to their dwelling and rejoice over him as over a real brother. For they call themselves brothers, ap- they do not call themselves brothers after the flesh, but after the Spirit and in God. If anyone among them is poor and needy, and they do not have food to spare, they fast for two or three days, that they may supply him with necessary food. They obey the commandments of their Messiah. Every morning and every hour they thank and praise God for his loving kindness towards him. This community that's being described in the second century, who, who's their treasure? What's their treasure? It's Jesus. A community that when the world, people from the outside looked in, they saw this community that was so loving and so caring and so giving. It astounded them. A community that was motivated by their love for Jesus and for others. It's profound. And when we watch the life of Jesus, our greatest treasure, we see someone who looked at the little children who were kind of the lowest part of society and he said, let them come to me. We see Jesus sitting and dining with tax collectors, giving and attending to a blind man that everyone else told to be quiet. We see Jesus sitting with a Samaritan woman and the Jews should not have associated with the Samaritans, but there he sat associating with a woman there. Helping her to find answers for her spiritual questions. We see Jesus over and over again. Giving his life, giving his life for others. Jesus' heart was in line with the Father. The Father was Jesus' greatest treasure. His mission statement was to do the will of the Father. So now we watch how Jesus lived when we read the Gospels. He never leveraged his position. He was never pushing his agenda to the neglect of someone. So when Jesus is our greatest treasure, we too will begin to have a heart to do the will of him who sent us, who saved us. What else do we see about our greatest treasure in this passage? We move on to verse 7. Our greatest treasure enables us to endure. Our greatest treasure enables us to endure. We read, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Friends, it's so difficult in the midst of a world that is continually trying to tell us what it means to have a good life. 
to keep our focus on Jesus. I'm not saying that this is easy. And I believe this is why James invites us to patience. He's reminding us that there are eternal realities. And, and John writing to a group of churches in, in, um, in Revelation, he writes about part of his vision, this very profound part of his vision. He talks about this struggle that we have to have our heart's treasure be in the right place. And in, in chapter 17 in, in Revelation, Jesus, Jesus, John is, has this vision of what he's calling the great prostitute. And it, it's coming up out of the water. And you read about this and it, it's kind of confusing. You're like, man, what is this? What's going on? In verse 3 of chapter 17, uh, John writes, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And he goes on to describe her. And then we get to this line where John writes, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the context of this, man, John's been having visions of heaven. And now he sees this symbol that represents all the, the wealth and luxury of the world. And John has to pause and go, man, that's really attractive. I'm really drawn to this thing. But the angel says to him, why do you marvel? And we go on in chapter 17 to read in verse 14. That, that this, this great prostitute, it says that she will make war on the Lamb. So she will come in opposition to the Lamb. This is Jesus. But the Lamb, Jesus, will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. So again, here in Revelation, we see the destiny of our culture's narrative of what the good life is. And that it is going to oppose Christianity, but ultimately it's going to fall. Our eternal Hope compels us to say no to the riches of the world. So a really good question that might emerge in the midst of all that I'm saying is, what does it mean that Jesus is our treasure? What does that mean? That sounds really nice, but what does that mean? I think in answering that question, first we have to ask the question of, of what, is, what is your treasure? When you think about this, this idea of the good life, that narrative, what's the thing that you feel drawn to and compelled to that isn't Jesus? What's the thing that you're giving your affection to that isn't Jesus? That's maybe making you make decisions that you know aren't good decisions. We ask that question. Th three really good metrics for this first question of asking what your question asking what your treasure is, is to, is to ask the question, what do I do with my time? Where do I spend my abilities or my talents? And what, how do I spend my finances? You want to jump ahead, Jack, two slides, I think? So yeah, ask what your treasures are in the next slide there. So three identifiers of what your treasure might be. Time, talents, and money. Um, to remember it better, you can use the alliteration, time, talents, treasure. Um, but asking that question, how do I spend my time? Where am I spending my time? What am I giving my life to in terms of time? That's a good question to ask. The answer to that question might identify a treasure. How, how am I spending my abilities, the things that I'm able to do, the ways in which I'm able to serve? How am I using my gifts? Thirdly, you can look at your bank account. Where's my money going? 
Is it all about me and my pleasure and storing up treasure here on earth? Or is my finances reflective of a heart that values Jesus first and asks Him, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you have given me? And as we prayerfully look at these three identifiers, we might see something start to emerge and be like, man, yeah, I'm really buying into this other idea of the good life. Colossians chapter 3 gives some good light on this too, of what does it mean for Jesus to be our treasure. And in Colossians, Paul writes these amazing words, and I forgot to mark it in my Bible. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So if you are a Christian, if you've been baptized, and you you come to look at Jesus as your Lord and Savior, seek the things that are above. Or Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Paul is saying the life of a Christian, a life where Jesus is their treasure, is one that has its focus set on Jesus. It's praying prayers like, Lord, what do you you want me to do today? Thank you for this day. Lord, how would you have me live this day? It's pursuing walking with Jesus in everything. Pursuing knowing Him. The next thing in, in making Jesus your treasure is coming to believe the things that Jesus said to be true. Believe what He said is true. Jesus said that He is the bread of life. Jesus said that He came to give us life to the full. He said that we should never go thirsty and that there should be a satisfaction in the depths of us that that quench the thirst of our souls. Jesus came to give us a new identity. Jesus promised that He would provide for us our needs. Jesus promised us His presence. And as we read the Gospels and study God's Word and, and come to see who is Jesus, What did Jesus say about himself? We start exploring little bits of, what does it actually mean that he's my treasure? And once we've explored these realities, then we choose to live in the truth of these realities. So if we believe Jesus is the bread of life, that he can satisfy us, we ask ourselves this question, where do I go when I'm looking for satisfaction? What do you do when you're looking for satisfaction? Do you look for satisfaction in in eating good food? Do you look for it in watching television? Do you look for it in alcoholism or drugs? If Jesus is our treasure, if we believe he's the bread of life, it's looking at that need in us and saying, Jesus, I believe that you can satisfy this hunger in me. And it's coming to him in prayer. It's coming to him and seeking him for joy. It's finding fellowship in the community of the saints, other believers. And experiencing the joy and feeling a satisfaction in that fellowship. Jesus said he came to give us life to the full. If we believe that, where are you looking for happiness? Where are you looking for happiness? Do you believe that happiness and joy can be found in the person of Jesus Christ? Friends, that's the gospel. Happiness and joy can be found in the the person of Jesus Christ. That he wants to give you joy. Do you believe that? Well, how do I find that? 
We are in the great place here this morning, worshiping with other believers, casting your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you, bringing him your burdens, bringing him those things that keep you from joy, and letting him touch that need in your life. Jesus said that we would never go thirsty. Many of us are feeling lonely, depressed, anxious. We feel a thirst in our souls. But do we believe that Jesus can satisfy that thirst in us? Jesus said that he came to give us a new identity. But how many of us are searching for identity in what other people think of us? How many of us are searching for identity in our appearance? Man, Jesus calls you sons and daughters. Jesus is a king. That makes you royalty. Jesus looks at us and and delights in us. He's pleased with us. And he wants to speak that to the very depths of who we are. But friends, if Jesus is is not our greatest treasure, if we're looking for identity somewhere else, I promise you, you will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. Jesus promised that he would provide. Many of us this morning are worried about our financial situations. Are we able to trust Jesus to bring him those concerns? To recognize that everything we have is is actually from him in the first place. And we're just stewards of it. Jesus promised his presence. Many of us feel like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Do we slow down enough and and actually invite Jesus into that place? It doesn't mean that everything feels great all of a sudden. But do we welcome his presence in those places of pain? So we need to identify what our treasure is. We need to repent of that if it's not Jesus. Which is really simply turning from it. Saying, Jesus, I'm sorry that you're not my treasure. Help me to make you my treasure. And then we need to pursue walking with him. Believing what he said to be true. Choosing to live out of those realities. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good. This is good news. This is good news. As Christians, we must not misplace our greatest treasure. Or trade it in for a counterfeit. Don't miss Jesus because of the pursuit of riches promised on a coffee cup. Don't give your life in the pursuit of things other than Jesus. It's not going to satisfy. Let's pray together. Invite the worship team to join me on the platform. Lord Jesus, thank you that In you, we find the greatest treasure. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the many, many ways, Lord, that we pursue other things, Lord. It's not just a matter of pursuing something else, Father, but but looking at other things and saying, no, that's my treasure, no, that's my treasure. And Father, I pray that we would not be found to be like the people that James describes who've accumulated a whole bunch of stuff that's about to rot and rust away. 
But Lord, I pray that we would be found as people who've invested not on earthly things, but in things in heaven. Lord, that we've given our lives. We've given our lives to you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, we would experience the outworking of it in the way that we love and serve and care for other people. Lord, I pray that as we look to you as our greatest treasure, that we would experience the joy and the peace that you have for us. And Lord, I know that looks different for each of us, the way that we experience those things, but but Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to experience them, even this week, even this day. Lord, may you be our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.